0: So I wanted to continue the theme that Heather started around cycles, cycles of practice and cycles of teachings that um, to continue the cycle of teaching in the Brahma-viharas, which um, through the the range of the Brahma-viharas as we turn loving-kindness to the full range of our experience, the 10,000 sorrows, and the 10,000 joys. There is this cycle of teachings that we also experience in in offering loving-kindness to the sorrows in which compassion automatically arises. And to offer loving-kindness towards those joys in our life that begin to connect us with a greater joy that we call mudita, a joy that is Greater than the pleasant experiences of our own individual life, and so the um, the practice of mudita or appreciative or sympathetic joy is the image that is 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 offered is a dear friend who is smiling all the time. This. This happiness that is so easily rejoiceable, that you can so easily empathize and share, and that the um, each of these brahma viharas has a proximate cause, something that enables, something that is a precursor, that is so worthy to be aware of, and the proximate cause of this appreciative or sympathetic joy is becoming aware of the value and the success in the life of beings around us. So just being aware of how valuable life is, being aware of um, the ability for life to go through these cycles of practice and life is a proximate cause. And, and so I want to explore also that as, as much of our practice is visioned as going upstream, that our, the conditioning of our larger culture um, is so resistant to the actual teachings of freedom that, that um, the, the practice itself is visioned as going upstream. That our culture is so sensationalistic in a way that, that, it is, that it looks for the cynical or the things that are broken and then publicizes it and, and characterizes it as news. And so we are very conditioned to looking at, at the problems, at the, at, the, um, at the places that are challenges, as opposed to, and we have said this before in this retreat, to acknowledge the sorrows in our life and not to forget that the 10,000 sorrows also have interwoven into them the 10,000 joys. That Thich Nhat Hanh has said, if there's a challenging issue in your life, where is the non-challenge? Where is the non-problem? Because not every aspect of your life is defined by that situation. The the classic Zen, Chinese Zen, but it also, it, ha, it has migrated into many aspects of the Zen tradition. The The classic teaching story around this is a Zen master was um, walking through a forest, a forested plateau, and, and he was he found himself being chased by a wild tiger, and so he was running to save himself and um, He ran until he reached the edge of the plateau, and it was a cliff that was cut off by this deep chasm and, and so he saw that there was a, a branch that was l- leaning out into the chasm, so he climbed down and and tried to grab onto the branch, trying to scramble down. And the tiger is sort of leaning over him, uh, looking for its next meal. And um, as he was hanging onto the branch, the branch began to crack. And um, in that moment of, of tiger branch cracking, he saw a bush in front of him that was filled with ripe strawberries. And he took one, and he bit into it and, and, and um, appreciated how delicious <laughs> the berry was. Describing the ability to have that sense of joy in life, regardless of condition around you. <laughs> Something to aspire to. And as we've said about the other Brahmaviharas, those those energies of the heart that are the divine abodes, the places, the the highest places in which our heart <laughs> resides. There are these what we call near and far opposites. Sometimes the traditional language is is near and far enemies. I don't like that term, so I've I've I use the the terminology near and far opposites that that the far opposite of um, uh, appreciative joy is envy. It's that competitive um, uh, not having enough feeling, that if someone has success or achievement in one's life, that, that I feel less than, that I feel envious of or jealous of. And really this comes from this other practice that we have, which is called selfing. It's really a practice of conceit. That, that it's a comparing, it's, a, it's, an out, it's an outcome of a comparing mind. That do they have more than I do? Do I have more than they do? The Buddha said, in a battle, the winners and losers both lose. Mudita is, is actually that, that near-opposite of competition or envy or that place we find ourselves when we are coming from uh, the, the place of a limited um, pie, the limited number of slices of the pie. That we're reluctant in actually sharing our happiness or indulging in other people's happiness, because we just don't feel that there's enough to go around. And somehow there's this possession of my happiness versus your happiness. And sometimes this comes up, even in the metta practice itself, in in some of the practice meetings of of the metta practice itself, um, triggering those places in which do they really deserve my loving kindness? Why should they get it versus myself or this other person? So really to to acknowledge that that developing that that sense of fullness of life, the sense of abundance begins to dissolve this this place of insufficiency, this place of inadequacy. The near opposite of um, appreciative joy, which is that which looks like, that sometimes can masquerade, that we think of as joy, is actually the, the extremes of um, that feeling, that exuberance, that, that, um, over exhilaration. And one of the images that I have that's really current in the current political scene is whenever any party, any side, in any, on any issue, wins. You know, there's this, this ebullient or this, this excitement that, oh my God, we've succeeded. And it's just not true. Because there is this cycle of this, you know, this complicated political life that we're in right now that goes up and down and up and down. And yet, whenever there's a quote-unquote victory, there's an over-attachment to its meaning. And so just noticing where that exuberance or that excitement comes from when we're not aware. And it can happen even in our... Our, our our lives. I just remember um, Stephen and I went on this mm, incredible vacation to France one year. We had never been to France and, and it was one of those times, because we don't travel all that frequently abroad, it was one of those times that we appreciated every single day. And we appreciated, you know, each day seemed to get better and better and then at some point in the two weeks, we realized this was going to end. And then where were we going to be? You know, should we not have a great time because it was going to end? And, and, and I could feel that, that exuberance sort of coloring my ability to, to hold that, that experience. Joy is is, you know, joy has certain associations with it, and really, joy is such a panoply of sensations and experiences. It is it is not any one um, description, and so there are these innumerable states that, as we become more and more mindful, as we refine our our mindfulness into what is arising, we begin to recognize the full dimensions of what joy really invites us to. That there are all sorts of subtle states of joy that we may completely miss, you know, in that, in that area that is not necessarily the extreme highs or the extreme lows. That, You know, there's this place of contentment, sometimes we call it, or satisfaction. They may even seem neutral because we're conditioned to only appreciate those extreme forms of expression. And that appreciation of joy in others, that appreciation of happiness in others is actually not that uncommon when you, when you have experience with your children or your children's children or your, your friend's children, that, that it's so easy to be happy when they're happy. It's just the movement of the heart. Or if any of you have taught in your life, whether it's on any level of education, when your students surpass you there's a joy there that is that that means number 1 how well you have done your work there's a um new orleans artist called candy chang and she has this um public art installation that she's done all across the world in different cities um, New Orleans, most, re- most recently in Chicago, but in Melbourne, Mexico, Santa Cruz, Kazakhstan, the Netherlands. And what she does is that across two or three blocks of city, she puts up these slate blackboards. And then there are lines for people to... And there's chalk that's given out in different colors. And the title above the the blackboard is... Before I die, I want to, and then you fill in the blank. So, these are people. what people wanted, want to do before they die. In Chicago, watch my kids go to college, fall in love, love and be loved, sing and dance, save a life, color my world. Fund scholarships. Meet LeBron James. (laughs) Be as successful as I dream to be. In New Orleans, not live an average life. Swim without holding my nose. (laughs) See equality. Abandon all insecurities. Swim with the dolphins. Live without regret. In Brooklyn, be a princess. Let go, finish the Iron Man, kiss God, see an end to racism, find out who I really am, create my own children's book, finish the bathroom. (laughs) (laughs) Make my parents proud, tell my mom I'm gay. in Mexico. Be a princess, I don't know. Maybe that's a (laughs) cross-cultural experience. (laughs) Change the lives of people. Before I die, I want my country to restore peace. Live the best life. Kazakhstan. Learn how to be brave. See my great-great-granddaughter. Change the world. See all people being kind. Make dreams come true. Be happy." Of course, I mean, of course, when you hear those things, they're, they're aspirations for happiness, and, and there's, there's a movement of, of course, I want you to get those things. Of course, I want to be happy at your happiness. It is what I would wish for you. And so, you know, one of the practices or the exercises, if this feels challenging in any way, is to borrow joy and kindness. To to just borrow it from a dear friend. Or to offer it to dear, a dear friend and see if you actually have anything less for having shared that. Just notice that when someone is smiling in the street or even on this retreat and you borrow that, whether they have any less than and how, how um, easy it is for that to be sort of infectious That happiness can be infectious. His Holiness says, if happiness spreads from person to person it only makes sense to practice mudita for others in that there is more of a chance that you will feel more happiness. The odds after all are six billion to one. (laughs) Pretty good odds. And also this sympathetic joy, this joy at appreciating someone else's happiness is actually the invitation to connect to a greater joy than our own experience, of course. That sense of interconnection It's a happiness that we know that we're not living this life in isolation. That regardless of the, the joys and the sorrows that we experience, that there, that there is a life that is way beyond what we think we are or, or that we are living. that we are all living in this vivid brilliance, this technicolor. And that, and that this life that the Buddha described as living 24 hours uh, with mindfulness is more precious than living 100 years without it, is turning this mindfulness to how precious this life is. Some of you know who um, Michael Bernard Beckwith is. He started the Agape Foundation in um, Southern California. And I use this passage sometimes to um, offer eating meditation, but it really is speaking to how brilliant um, life is, how joyful life can be even in its most mundane moments if our mindfulness is with us. I was a young boy, probably 10. All the students at the school had been asked to grow gardens, and I can remember planting seeds in the soil of my backyard, carrots, radishes. One afternoon I went into the backyard and I pulled a radish out of the soil and bit into it. It was so sweet. In that moment I felt the whole universe contained in this radish. It had begun as a seed, then merged with the soil and the air and the water until it became the vegetable that I was now eating. I thought, this is what they're trying to teach me. This is what they're trying to teach me in church. They're trying to tell me this is life. This life, this presence, this is the force they're trying to tell me is God. this zest for life how precious life is in this moment this 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 is supported by our curiosity our ability to wonder at things the sense of awe that we have as our life is unfolding through the joys and the sorrows and so the some of the phrases that you will Um, be introduced to around practicing appreciative joy may sound like, may we enjoy happiness and abundance. May our happiness and good fortune never wane. May we rejoice in our happiness. May we feel contented and pleased. May the causes of our happiness continue. Audre Lorde, who was um, a human rights activist, she was a feminist, she was um, a poet, uh, she worked endlessly for um, uh, lesbian and and gay rights issues, as well as civil rights and African-American causes and also um, passed away from liver cancer at a relatively um, early age, after a um, a 14-year struggle. She writes, Once we recognize it is what we are feeling, once we recognize we can feel deeply, love deeply, can feel joy, then we will demand that all parts of our lives produce that kind of joy. I was um, in one of my um, practice meetings this morning. The phrase that was offered to me um, was, it's good to be alive. That was the first words that, that came. It was good to be alive. And that joy of being alive moved seamlessly into an expression of gratitude. And as we expand this, this mindfulness and kindness practice, as we meet our lives moment to moment with this gentleness, what begins to arise is how precious life is, and in that form, a sense of gratitude. This openness and wonder of, what this moment is really like—this, this, this wow—and and you've all experienced it here, being mesmerized by a lizard on the on the ground, or or how the turkeys move up the hill, or the uh, there was one morning in which there was the fog after the um, after the rain, and you could actually smell the fog lift. I was walking up the hill this morning, and, and it was fairly... The hills were, were, because of the clouds in the background, were not in light, but on the top of the hill, there was just one section of, of illuminated landscape. And it looked like Eden. I mean, that's, you know, an analogy from a different tradition, but... <laughs> maybe I should say Shangri-La, but it was... <laughs> it was It was stunning, and then it went away. all those things you know in the rain, even did you notice that 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 as the, as the cascade of, of water goes down the the path and the raindrops hit it actually splatters into into you know many dozens of smaller drops before it before it merges back into the the river of the water, or the cascading of the water. Just amazing visual images. And we stop taking these things for granted. That's what usually happens. We just overlook them. And so all of the practices that we offer, whether it's on the breath, or on the body, or the eating meditation, it's really Look how amazing this is. Um, a couple of years ago when Misha was 13, uh, he's uh, comes from a family, a friend. His family is a friend of, of friends and um, He was getting ready for his bar mitzvah. Um, He's 16 now. Um, And um, I was asking Sylvia at lunch what a young boy um, uh, goes through in order to prepare themselves for it. And it's really, they do a lot of work in terms of um, this, this coming of age, in terms of what kind of wisdom... Has, has their life offered to them, and what can they offer in the way of how they live their life. And um, so my friend was describing that uh, when Misha was preparing for his Bar Mitzvah, um, he went and had the meeting with the rabbi and, and spent a time in his room. And, and the day before the, um, the celebration and the ceremony, he came out of his room with this poem. It's called amazement. We can find ways to raise ourselves above others, rankings and orders. But when we stand on butterfly wings or fall with thick rain or rest in the heartbeat of a hummingbird, we look upon the world with a sense of awe that all humans have. We can wake up to the sirens of the daily drag, but if we open our eyes and absorb the world around us, we might find that salutation of serendipity. And if we look closely enough, we can find that sun ray of serenity, surrendering to the morning dew. These acts of wonder may not be plentiful, and they may not be expected, but they are there waiting for you to notice. It may not be a tulip or a rainbow, it may just be a handshake or a sound that wakes up your soul calling out with a voice only you can understand. It is these moments that makes us live. The wait may seem worthless, but the time is priceless. And so we live each day the same until we find a rose or a rock or a feather that calls our name and speaks to us with infinite seconds of complete bliss. We never lose that sense of awe or amazement. Gratitude is that internal movement that rises in our hearts in appreciation for this this precious life. And like mudita, like joy, it's difficult to do it. It's difficult to be grateful when we're keeping score or having a comparing mind or when we feel less than or insufficient. So this is where a practice of recognizing, remembering, this mindfulness practice of remembering over and over again how much we've been given, the abundance of our lives. That was one of the guided meditations that was offered in the loving-kindness practice earlier in this retreat. the Buddha said, there were two kinds of precious human beings in the world. Those who are generous and those who are grateful. That they are like a hand fitting into the glove. That gratitude, generosity and kindness is really the same movement of the heart. And so some of you have spent time or Practiced in Thailand, know that the 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 movement of generosity and the movement of gratitude really it's hard to to tease apart as one action. So that in the monasteries, um, you know, the the space, the life, the teachings are offered unconditionally. Right? There's no cost. To the, the The families go to the temples instead of going to Great America or Six Flags. They go and show up at the temples and they they socialize um, they and they have their um, conversation circles the um, they're playing chess with the monks and they 're meditating and they take on precepts and then in in response to being offered the teachings, there is always support for the temple, but not necessarily because an event has occurred, so that this practice of dhana sometimes that we call in the West doesn't happen just because a dharma talk is given or that there's a session for meditation. It happens all the time. So that there are trees in which you just pin you know, your offerings or your, your gifts too. And, and um, uh, when someone is moving towards the altar with an envelope of a donation, what will happen is someone else will come up to them and add to their envelope. And then another person will come up and add to their envelope because it doesn't matter who gives. It's not about owning even the act of generosity because it's coming from this collective place of gratitude. The highest act of generosity is offering the Dharma and the the highest experience of gratitude is receiving that. So I don't know if some of you have been to the gratitude hut that is near the prayer wheel um, on the land. But just being held by the teachers of our teachers of our teachers and realizing how far back that goes, that no matter how difficult this room feels sometimes, and all of us have been in that place, We have so much support coming from billions of practitioners that have been walking this path. Allowing the Dharma to show up for our lives today. That's how abundant it is for us. there is a little sign on the gratitude hut and it says, Katanyuta. And so that, that phrase is um, broken into two parts. Kata means that which has been done. And anuta means knowing or recognizing, remembering. So Katanyuta means recognizing what has been done for one's benefit. this abundance really allows us to uh, let go of some of this conditioning that we have that things are not enough. And that it is always a mindfulness practice to remember how much we have. I have um, uh, a brother who is like 12 years older than I am, and we, I, I feel we are worlds apart. And there's a lot of irritation that comes up across those worlds. And inc- including personality, including choices that we make in life. And, and um, I often vent this. Um, uh, and then one day when I was venting, Stephen reminded me, at least you have a brother. And that put it into perspective. And a lot of our practices are about recognizing the difference between what it is we want and what do we actually need to, to have a perfectly satisfied and contented life. So the, the, pra- the, the practice in the eating meditation of, of eating five bites from full, of of eating enough, but so often we're eating way beyond that, that need, simply because we're driven by, by desire. And to really notice the difference between what it is that we need versus when we're being driven by that second noble truth. My father used to always um, drink hot water and for a long time, I never understood why. He wouldn't drink, you know, anything in the hot water. And so I asked him when I was a teenager, why are you doing this? And, and, and he said, um, so that I can appreciate coffee and tea when I actually have it. <laughs> and so I don't, that, that he doesn't take this for granted it's what i drink these days and it's and it's true when i when i get a caramel macchiato <laughs> it actually is a it, it it actually is so much more flavorful these days your practice of the eight precepts those of you who are on the eight precepts is this invitation into exploring what is enough and that anything on top of that, you know, is, it's, it's an invitation into gratitude. One of the Buddha's last teachings is called the Bequeath Teaching Sutra. And he says, you who want to escape from all the various afflictions must contemplate what it means to know satisfaction. For people who do not know satisfaction, it does not suit their fancy, even if they're in heaven. People who do not know satisfaction are poor, even if they're rich. People who do know satisfaction are rich, even if they're poor. This place of contentment can feel so subtle sometimes, and we miss it. And so really explore, when are things just okay? When are things enough? There's this unknown, this is an unknown attribution, but it actually has a, a bearing on, on, on the practice of gratitude. If you haven't all the things you want, be grateful for all the things you don't have that you wouldn't want. I'm really grateful for you know, not having that rage that I see in our current political process. I'm really grateful that I don't know how to Twitter because I cannot take any other piece of technology in my life. <laughs> I'm really grateful for the small apartment that we have because I can't stand to clean the house. Really it is it Recognizing what is enough is actually an experience of joy. Contentment is not about how much we have. It's about actually how little we need to live a happy life. And so really just even in this moment, to notice, what do you not need in this moment? Where in your life are things just fine? Because in that place, there's a freedom from wanting. There's a freedom from the second noble truth. And the deeper that we go into this practice of gratitude, the more gratitude invites us to include the range of our life, all of our life, not just those things that we like, but to include all of the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. That gratitude is actually not a selective practice. It's not even conditioned on the feelings of abundance. It's being grateful for the challenges and the ease that we've had. So I often, you know, um, tell stories of my parents because they are, I know that I've had the privilege of their, their um, impact on me as one of my primary teachers, two of my primary teachers. And yet my relationship with them for many decades was incredibly strained and broken because of um, my sexuality, because of my bicultural conditioning that was really different from their cultural origin. And about 20 years ago... um, was the process that I began coming out to my parents. And um, at that time, this was in the early 80s, so uh, one of my mother's response was, you're going to die because of the, of the AIDS crisis at that time. And um, I had to be with that really painful reaction of, you're going to die every time I saw her until she went through her process of education. And a um, m- little over eight years ago, when uh, Stephen and I uh, went through our commitment ceremony, um, it, it, was a, it was an event that she had very mixed feelings in attending. She said at one point, it won't be good if I go, and it won't be good if I won't don't go. And she finally showed up, dressed in black and gray. <laughs> <coughs> and the next time I saw her, which was the next few days after that, she proceeded to tell me every single thing that went wrong. And then, you know, we work through that. Um, she got to know Stephen, uh, and uh, she began cooking his favorite food, which I could tell shifted the relationship because that's how uh, often mothers show their love is not by, not by speech, but by action. But about a year and a half ago when, um, you know, there was um, this, this, um, this stuff in the news about Tyler Clemente suiciding off of the uh, Washington, George Washington Bridge, the young gay man out of Rutgers that was um, goaded by a videotape of him uh, by his roommate. And... Um, we were watching this on CNN, and my mother turns to me, and she said, were you ever bullied? And in that moment, I, I could feel the freeze. I could feel, you know, if she had asked me that 20 years ago, I would have, I would have ignored the question, because I didn't think that she would be able to understand or or hear my experience. And so, but I I had noticed all these changes in our relationship, and I went with it, and I went to that place that I was most vulnerable. And I shared with her, you know, how difficult my sixth through twelfth grade was. And The conversation didn't last more than five minutes. But her first words after I described my experience was, Why didn't you tell us? And that was such a shift for me. To hear, even after 40 or 50 years, that place of unconditional regard and wanting to be there whatever had happened between 6 and 12, between us growing up, between all the struggles around, you know, my identity, all of it fell away. And I was just so grateful that we went through this process and that it wasn't too late, even after 50 years, that the healing is never too late. Sometimes what the theme that sometimes comes up in practice meetings is i w- it's you know i wish i had started earlier i wish i had done this earlier it's never too late to be in the present to be in relationship to one's life in in a real way and to experience this incredible gratitude for the joys and the sorrows that We're just so close. Gratitude rejoices in whatever has taken place. That that is how complex our life is. That the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows actually are one. They are that close that I would not be here without the sorrows in my life. You would not be here without the sorrows and the joys. And that's the full range of life that the Buddha invites us to fully love and accept and be aware of. Gratitude does not eliminate the grief or the loss or the pain in our life. It begins to complete it. It holds our life with this kindness. We accept the highs and the lows, the praise and the blame, the pleasure and the pain, the gain and the loss, the fame and the disrepute. There's a sense of healing because we internalize. We don't just understand, but we, we feel from the inside out what an incredible life is that is unfolding in front of us. So one more poem by um, a 14 year old. Maddie Stepenick, um was born in July 1990 and he passed away in June 2004. He had six bo- books of poetry written before he passed away. Uh, one of them was on the New York Times bestseller list. He was an international peace advocate, he lobbied on Capitol Hill. He lobbied for peace, people with disabilities, and children with life-threatening illnesses. He had this rare form of muscular dystrophy, and um, that resulted in his death a month before his 14th birthday. Um, His brother and his two sisters also succumbed to this disease. His, His mother has the adult form, but didn't know that she had it until she had her four children. And he wrote this in June of 2000. It's called, I Could If They Would. If they would find a cure when I'm a kid, I could ride a bike and sail on rollerblades. And I could really take long nature hikes. If they would find a cure when I'm a teenager, I could learn my license and drive a car. And I could dance every dance at my senior prom. If they would find a cure when I'm a young adult, I could travel around the world and teach peace. I could marry and have children of my own. If they would find a cure when I'm old, I could visit exotic places, appreciate culture, and I could proudly share pictures of my grandchildren. If they would find a cure when I'm alive, I could live each day without pain and machines. I could celebrate the biggest thank you of life ever. If they would find a cure when I'm buried into heaven, I could still celebrate with my brothers and sisters there and I could still be happy knowing that I was part of the effort. That joy and that gratitude, regardless of how life arises, each of us have suffered in our own ways in this life. That is the teaching of the first noble truth. And there is that classic image of the lotus rising from the darkness of muddy waters. Because we create these beautiful lies, each and every one of us. We create these beautiful lives, not in spite of the darkness of muddy waters, but because of the darkness. Because of the first noble truth, there is freedom. The freedom that that really makes this life so very precious. And I know that all of us are so grateful and in great joy to have the honor of your practice across this time. Deep appreciation for all of you.